Thank you for listening to the Coal Mind Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas, and it's August 30th, 2020. Today I stay close to home, visiting the Dallas County Courthouse a couple of years ago for the trial of a personal injury case arising from a rear-end collision over in East Dallas. I'll watch the lawyers and the judge select the jury that will hear the evidence in the case. One side has asked to strike three Hispanic potential jurors from the list of potential jury members. Today, we will explore how the Constitution shapes the correct ruling on that objection. In November 2015, on Garland Road in East Dallas, Kenneth Murphy rear-ended Alfonso Mejia Arcos. Mr. Mejia Arcos said he was rear-ended while waiting for a red light to change. Mr. Murphy said he was making a turn when Mejia Arcos suddenly hit the brakes for no good reason and their cars collided. Mejia Arcos sued for his injuries and the case went to a jury trial in a Dallas County District Court. The first stage of a jury trial is jury selection. You've probably been summoned down to the courthouse for it. A group of prospective jurors is called up to the courtroom where both sides, lawyers, and the judge can ask questions of them. Why are they doing that? Because the civil jury trial is one of the rights expressly guaranteed by the Constitution in the Seventh Amendment. It doesn't guarantee that right because juries are more accurate or more efficient than other ways of resolving disputes. It guarantees it because a jury is drawn together and made up of the people, of the citizens. And like voting, it is a process that brings the law and government directly to the people and places an important decision in the hands of the country's citizens. Judges determine the law in our system, but juries find the facts when brought to trial. In this case, the question whether Mahe Arcos was wrongly rear-ended or caused the accident himself is a classic jury trial question. The next question you may have as you watch the proceedings unfold is, what are they doing? If you ask the judge, he or she will say they're trying to find a jury free of prejudice. The word impartial gets thrown around a lot, but it's impossible to find a jury without opinions. That's why you have the jury in the first place, is that the citizens who are called to make up the jury bring their views about the issues and their thoughts about the state of the world. But it is possible to identify and eliminate jurors who have prejudged some issue of the case, who just can't trust a police officer no matter what, for example, or who have very strong feelings about seatbelt use and so forth. And a jury who shows that kind of prejudgment is excluded from jury service for cause. Remember that when I just asked, what are you doing, I only asked the judge. If you turn and ask the lawyers, they'll of course say they're trying to win the case. And here, the law of jury selection has an unusual feature. It runs back hundreds of years. You have the right, your side has the right, to strike a handful of potential jurors. The number varies. Five or six is common for no reason at all. They're called peremptory strikes. This whole process, by the way, of the peremptory strikes, the strikes for cause, the questioning by the judges, by the judge and the lawyers, is called voir dire. That's the Texas pronunciation of a, a phrase uh, that is more commonly pronounced voir dire in the rest of the country. It uh, in turn comes from a phrase in French that has traveled to us from a long time back in history. The only limit to this peremptory strikes, the strikes for any reason, is that they can't be done on the basis of race, ethnicity, or gender. Call the the jury in To Kill a Mockingbird, the all-white jury that was brought together to hear the case involving Atticus Finch's African-American client. That illustrates a problem that has haunted the administration of justice in the South. And there's a line of Supreme Court cases about the issue, the most notable one, the first one in the line, being called Batson. And that's where the Batson problem came up this morning at the courthouse. 
Mr. Murphy's counsel moved to strike three Hispanic potential jurors, and Mr. Mejia Arcos's counsel asserted a violation of jury selection law in the Batson line of cases. A Batson challenge raises three questions. First, is there a statistical disparity in the number of jurors struck compared to the panel as a whole? Number two, is there a race-neutral explanation for the strikes that on its face makes sense and is plausible? And number three, does that explanation hold up when examined in the full context of all the other events involving jury selection? A trial judge went through that three-stage process that morning, and the Dallas Court of Appeals went through it later, a couple of years after the fact, when it reviewed the case on appeal. As to the first factor, the Court of Appeals summarized the numbers. There was a statistical disparity. After at the original group of 40, um, several jurors were excused for cause or hardship. That left 31. Seven of them were Hispanic, 24 were not, so a total of 22.5% Hispanic. Mr. Murphy's counsel had six strikes. He struck three Hispanics, three of seven, and three of 24 of the rest. That is a disparity under the law in this area. He struck more Hispanics proportionally than he did other races and ethnicities on the jury panel. That, under the applicable law, qualifies as a disparity that requires further examination under the Batson line of cases. The second factor, the race-neutral explanation. One juror of the three that had been struck had experience in a similar accident, and that explanation uh, was acceptable to the trial court and was ultimately acceptable to the Court of Appeals, particularly when considered along with the testimony. That juror kind of goes by the wayside. That explanation was something that is not unusual to see in a, in a personal injury case or, for that matter, in a commercial dispute where someone in the jury panel has been involved with a mortgage dispute or a partnership issue, the kinds of business issues that tend to be tried at the courthouse. The other two, though, raised a much more difficult question. The lawyer said certain key witnesses in this case are not comfortable in English and will be testifying through interpreters from their original language of Spanish. His concern was that jurors would credit the Spanish original testimony of those witnesses over the English translation that would serve as the official record of the proceedings and be what the English-speaking jurors were considering in their evaluation of the evidence. He argued that his examination, his review of the facts surrounding those two Hispanic jurors suggested that they might credit the Spanish original over the English interpretation and thus wouldn't be able to fully carry out their responsibilities as jurors to listen to the evidence in the correct way. This leads to the third factor, whether the explanation holds up under scrutiny. As I mentioned just now, the one about the juror who had a personal experience involving a similar accident held up. That was accepted as valid by the Court of Appeals. That strike was accepted as a good strike. As to the other two, reasonable minds differed. The trial court accepted the explanation about the problem with the translation, but the Court of Appeals said, mm, we understand that's a plausible explanation, but when you actually examine the transcript of what questions you, lawyer, asked the jurors, you never asked about that specific topic. You asked those jurors about the ability to understand English. You asked generally about the ability to be fair. But the specific issue about crediting <clears throat> the original speaker over the interpreter, you didn't actually ask any of these jurors, or for that matter, any of the prospective jurors. If the issue was in fact as significant as you said it was, then we should have seen it elsewhere in the record and we don't see it at all. The Court of Appeals takes some pains in this opinion to explain that it's not trying to gauge the motive of the lawyer who made these strikes or to suggest that they in fact acted for an improper purpose or had evil intent about people of Hispanic origin. 
they said that simply the only thing they can evaluate as a court looking at a cold record, they're not out there participating, they're not watching, they can't see inside people's heads, is to look at what actually happened. And this record on its face is one that gives rise to an inference that there was a strike for an impermissible reason, and thus it is not acceptable in the system, separating the subjective from the objective. Here, the Constitution surfaces in an unexpected place, a busy weekday morning in a dispute about a car crash, and it forces a very specific question about the definition of racial bias. It's easy to say we are opposed to the all-white jury that we saw in To Kill a Mockingbird, and that we're opposed generally to the idea of racial animus having a part to play at all in forming a jury to resolve a dispute under the law. But the fact is, it's hard to measure. We, our judges, our Justices on the Courts of Appeals do not have clairvoyance, we cannot read minds, so we have to look at the next best thing, the objective facts, the head counts, the statistics, the questions asked, the inferences that you can draw from those questions, and reasonable minds can and will differ about how to apply the Constitution to situations such as this, as they did in administering justice in this case. Today on Coal Mind, we went to trial and we watched the selection of the jury in the personal injury case of Mejia Arcos versus Murphy. The appellate review of that opinion finished just a couple of months ago in our Dallas Court of Appeals. We saw the process of the juror strikes, the voir dire process, we heard the objections, and we saw how the trial judge applied the Constitution to the events of that busy Dallas morning, and how the Court of Appeals, looking at the same record, reached a different conclusion about how it applied. The challenges faced by that the judge and lawyers that day and by the justices on the Court of Appeals are faced every day in many other contexts across our country as we try to identify and eliminate unfair racial stereotyping from our public life. You can follow this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and the other main directories. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon. <music>